From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name's Mark von Schlegel. Um, I'll be reading from my new novel, Mercury Station. It's a science fiction story, and the protagonist is named Edder J. Ryan. Um, he's on the planet Mercury in the year 2150. He's been put in a prison because he's a member of the BRA, a feminist Irish radical organization in the future. And he and his comrades are attempting to travel back in time to escape their prison. Chapter 6. My Cold Mad Father He came for Ryan. They say man went to space for the moon because the moon was his mother. There isn't a moon on Mercury at all, but there was one off Earth, and Edward Joseph Ryan was born off it in a pan-Irish diasporic lab in 2113. Before he was two, Eddard's brain was augmented in patterns that would be able to receive the information available to the most advanced thinkers of his day photographically. But he had no mother or father and was placed in a lunar city orphanage affiliated with the G.A. military. His emotional life was pretty intense. As he grew, control saw to it that languages, histories, entire books were presented to his consciousness in timely packets. These books gave him a sense of self and belonging to an ideal history. In both space and time, he was without reasonable attachments. Strictly speaking, he regarded all contemporaries as potential archenemies and or missing family members. But it wasn't until he was 18 that Eddard Ryan found himself endowing an older male with the totem privilege of father. This was in 31 before the elevator came down. With the pan-Irish of space beginning to organize in unions and Irish-speaking settlements even in the outer reaches of the system, the struggle against English hegemony was strong, working on intergenerational time. Edward Ryan was not rushed into battle. After the Orangerie, control provided him a low-G flat in Lunar City. He worked in the compound's mall, serving the counter in a hollow shop, renting out equipment and sex worlds to needy spacers, and laundering credit for a Parsons Crater supermeth lab. Young Ryan swept the floors, shelved capsules, and sat most of the day by a wig terminal, looking to be generally minding his own business. He was, in fact, gathering intelligence in the service of a secret paramilitary organization. He kept track of technological innovations, infiltrated black markets, recorded the effects of the latest drugs, that sort of thing. His acquaintances were low-brow engineer types, shallow crooks of all ages, surviving as free spacers, but never getting off the moon. He had yet to find a father figure worthy of intergenerational obsession. How vast a one was presently among him. Nothing but the stink of whiskey announced the entrance of Edward Ryan's first and greatest father figure onto the little stage of his pre-orphan life. Though very about near as wide as he was tall, the balloon-like spacer had a lightness of touch only possible, especially possible in low gravity. The young man hadn't even noticed him enter the hollow shop. When the reek of drink had taken on a disruptive intensity, the lad looked up from his post to see an enormous figure tracking through the racks of H-porn capsules with dainty elan, nose up so as not to be examining a single title. The stick was for balance, not support, and contained, so Ryan's guard unit informed him, an arsenal of power. Ryan had heard of your new estaters, of course, but new estaters disliked being known about. He'd had little information as to the shape and size of particular individuals. They stayed away from other people's architectures, preferring to build whole worlds to contain themselves from which they need never in a long extended lifetime leave. They communicated cum simulacra or via wig or not at all. Young Ryan hadn't seen the blast of wealth's blaze up close before, had never realized a body could be a thing so strange, so artificial, so fine. Yet though he was curious and would have stared, 
He didn't want to appear a rude and in inexperienced lab rat. He now returned his attention to the old paperback copy of Kipling that lay open before him. This was the right thing to do. Free spacers, for whom time was an entity exactly as vast as space itself, respected a reader. Reginald Simway Skaw, as the youngster would eventually discover, more than most. Furthermore, on the rare occasion Skaw chose to enter society, he craved attention. If you didn't look his way, he would do anything to make you do so. And so it was now. After a dainty twirl, his cane tapped twice on Edward Ryan's greasy, poly-protected desk module, and the newest stater stated his business as if the boy had asked it of him. "'I seek Sir Reeves,' he declared. The silky wetness of the words, the spitty K oddly, insistently, impossibly vulgar, penetrating the ear for the sake of the rolling R to come, immediately Edward Ryan felt the loss of a virginity he hadn't even known he had possessed. Yet despite the awakening of experience engendered by the articulation— he did not look up from the Kipling. I seek, the fat man repeated more loudly, Sir Reeves. Reeves was a eunuch whose illegal augmentations allowed him to interface mainframes direct without conscious realization. He plugged in and became for all the world a P-zombie, entering trance states and emitting secret information. This made him invaluable for criminals of all sort, but forced him to work relatively cheap since he had no idea by definition what he was doing. Ryan hadn't seen him in some time. Reeves is not around, he answered. Who may I tell him is called? Ryan looked up from Kipling and for the first time beheld in close-up that great expansive face, already absorbing all attention to it, breaking like a gas giant into a spectacular display of swarm and storm under his gaze. An eyebrow rising as if defying all gravity, shining pug nose retreating over sneering lip, flock of chins collapsing into a shattered map of randomly distributed folds, curling together into a wide and wet-lipped smile, a charming smile meant so it seemed for him alone, and a sudden whisper, What are your own capabilities, boy? Edward Ryan was not so young as not to have been approached by aged free thinkers by the rail station in the Danish domes of Luna City. He'd only succumbed to the women, however, and he now leaned back quickly when the soft, cold fingers of the newest stater brushed against the desk module's polyshield, answering, electromagnetic, not biophysical. The eyebrow registered curiosity. I have a little knick-knack I need Sarah Reeves to find for me, a juicy scrap of well-defended information. The tongue paused. The glistening face squinted as if having some difficulty coming into focus on Edward Ryan, a grimace as the eyes slid downward and took note of the book before him. Kipling? I'm reading English literature. It was left out of my education. Was it indeed? Well, you have work to do. But Kipling? Some rungs are more necessary than others, my boy. Do you have butler? There were many butlers in the lad's memory, some English and some not. Edward Ryan intuited that the fat man had little interest in women, a fact in which he was to be proven both right and quite wrong, and went immediately to the first of three Samuels. Ryan quoted from the Hudibras, It is not fighting arsy versy shall serve thy turn. The new estater shivered in a state nearer to liquid than flesh at standard atmosphere temperatures. It was not quite laughter. No matter, for he ceased and grunted, but what's the point of honey in a shithole? He leaned back, casting an ironic eye over the vulgar establishment, petting the knob of his stick with soft, worm-like fingers. Inexplicably, Edward Ryan hated the fat decadent at that moment, with a burst of emotion such as he had never felt before. Endorphins, hormones, heart rate, he longed to strike out and kill. 
Ryan kept his rage in control by picturing his bare fist pulverizing the fatty face, and then rightly selected the most hurtful of all of his possible responses. He returned to reading Kipling. The motion occasioned from the fat man a strange noise. Only when the new estater had finally burst out of the shop and tripped lightly up the sticky track outside, Eddie Ryan saw he had left a paper card behind on the desktop. It was right justified and written, so you had to read it. Reginald Simway Skaw, C.C., The Pollyann, Free Space. Chapter 7, The Chrononauts. Ryan researched. Captain Count Reginald Simway Skaw was well-known, a system celebrity. He was older than anyone knew, lived in a state-of-the-art estate inside the vast zero-gravity emptiness of an old grain evader now done up as an intersystem stationary hauler called the Pollyann. There were those that believed the Skaws who appeared in public, they were wont to at all odd times, apparently, were in fact actors. It was said he was a collector by trade, a dealer and gatherer of antiquities, a man with connections in the Irish underworld and in the halls of the concerns. Skaw trafficked with thieves and counterfeiters, but seemed to have made sure that no one knew for sure what he stood for, what he was up to at all. Some two months later, on the 27th of April, 2131 in fact, Eddie Ryan opened his yearly gift from control. He was surprised to find a state-of-the-art monocle. Concern made, spacer-hacked, best of both worlds. It was an Omega, the holy grail of tech freaks of all stripes. And Control had ghosted it with a response algorithm that forwarded the piece's identity onto a randomly ever-changing series of cascading zombies as soon as it was incorporated into any observational network. It was impossible to trace. Odd, then, that at the precise moment it came to position in young Ryan's eye socket, the monocle emitted a sophisticated sound vibe, a pong. He received, and an immediately familiar tone, velvet, high, wet, soft, issued into his inner ear. Look here, it's Reg Skaw. What is your particular area of expertise? There is none, answered Eddie Ryan truthfully. Good. I'm in need of a confidential assistant immediately. And so the poor orphan was plucked from obscurity to become confidential assistant to Captain Count Reginald Simway Skaw, inventor, investor, and intersystem celebrity. It didn't inflate Eddard Ryan's vanity. Control had evidently decided it was time for him to enter the field. There was no doubt that to serve Skaw in this most intimate and confidential manner could offer access to currents in space only the most rich and fortunate in the system could sample. The Black Rose Army needed to know what was happening on board the Pollyann. But did Control understand as well the particular intensity of young Ryan's relationship to the Count? Perhaps. For if our friend had hoped to find a father in Count Skaw, he was to be disappointed. Eddard Ryan didn't see most of the high society as it passed by. He had a small toroid in the household ring, and enjoyed private meals with other workers in the kitchen, served most often by Skaw's wife, the great Anatole himself, a world-famous Nigerian chef who'd once prepared dishes for the elite of Blue Mars. It was difficult for him to glean any certain knowledge of Skaw's history. Clearly timely investments, theft, invention had led to great wealth. But Eddard Ryan had never discovered precisely what had placed his employer in the exclusive ranks of the new estaters. Today Skaw's fortune was represented entirely by the Pollyann, a literal city-state of its own. There were no off-ship interests. Skaw leased away the ship's entire skin to brothels, casinos, moontels, and bars, and worked on his own projects privately in the vast reaches of its hold. To enjoy free energy, the Pollyann had to pull GA liners when it passed between major loci, so it moved rather aimlessly through the system. 
Skaw had little interest in where the ship was headed at any particular time. He only left his grounds twice in the two years Eddie Ryan served him, yet was nonetheless able to stay in constant touch with the flow of ideas and technology still holding system space together. There were often guests in the manor, academics, politicians, gangsters, and GA officials, all claiming rights to hospitality as they passed between stations. Some came to transport, buy, or sell valued objects, others to partake in the exquisite meals prepared by Anatole, others came just to see the famous estate itself and meet the Count. The 3D zero-G parkland of the Grain Evaders holds, boasting trees, meadows, honeybees, livestock, and weather every which way, wasn't the strangest feudalism in space, but it was in the running. Smack in the center of the weightless parkland spun Skaw's manor house dodecahedron, wind-powered, entirely fashioned of wood and new rock, complete with salon, dining panel, and the finest library in space. It was surrounded by a 17-suite living torus on an old Henry Zickel's design, an undeniable classic of new space architecture. Ryan bunked with the occasional worker in the torus, but worked in a little office in the manor and secretly entered through the library. He worked almost exclusively on Skaw's great and ruling passion, the secret project that consumed the new estater in all his doings like a disease. Chrononautics, the harvesting of time's sexual organs, the cataloging, collecting, the arranging, and manipulation of historical artifacts so as to necessitate an already occurred time circuit, a quasi-science out to literally presume time travel into existence or drive its cheap proponents insane in the attempt. Yes, time travel. Despite its well-known failure, it had not been forgotten. Earthside's ecological fate was sealed long ago, but R.S. Skull was of the witnessing generations. I don't know how old he was. He had seen the great biosphere when it was still relatively intact, and he had seen it collapse. He complained about it no end, prophesied accurately that the brief renaissance of the early system would fall quick enough to the same mighty death drive of evolution's peculiar species. In such a context, time travel held understandable attraction. Not only did the past appear a happier place, the fact that time machine receivers had been built but no time travelers had arrived was explained by chrononautics with a future that was no longer an entity to be reckoned with. The past was all they had. If Earth's fate was sealed, then its history was now a closed system. Causal anomalies could no longer disturb the outcome. The current present began to appear as a simple contingency to make possible the chrononaut's successful penetration into its past. It sounds ridiculous, perhaps, to a non-augmented mind. But when one had enough energy, money, and technological power, one could really begin to make the outside world at least appear to be in accord with one's most nominally insane fantasy and Reg Skaw had such resources. At Skaw's command, Eddard Ryan pored over authenticities in search of evidence of chrononautic penetration already in the record. Gaps, breaks, anomalies, evident whitewashes. Afra Ben, James T. Cook, the Fabricius brothers of Delft, the three voices of La Pucelle, the Tusunga explosion, the wreck of the Teresa Celeste, Art Bell's fifth retirement, 22 November 1987 and other legendarily unknown epic-defining events, points of disconnect remaining essentially and importantly insoluble by definition. Let's say there was a real Afro-Ben in some long-lost 17th century on board an earth newly uncomfortable with its own being round, a Miss Ben, I say, stepping onto the shores of America somewhere near the Orinoco River. She stops, takes it in, the scanty teeming port, the scents, the naked breasts, the curling buttocks of the savages, the sound of the strange birds, the drums, the primitive craft that brought her here. Imagine, sir, 
She steps away from her party, a humid mist arising of a sudden as it is wont to do in that clime at that very season. And for a moment Mrs. Ban is entirely lost to us, sir, entirely up for grabs. Outside the communication networks that sustain her cultural identity, we may pluck her just where herself has come undefined. As to the vulgar chatterer who returns to a never-quite-seduced London, it will not be, dear fellow, by her pen alone that Miss Ben will now earn her bread. No, this apparent first in a long line of vulgar women intent on forcing the issue of their identity upon the historical record will be simultaneously involved in the highest echelons of its secret history, close upon where they move, more close than we know. The complete works, read them again. Afra Ben, a chrononaut? One of many, Scar eventually came past believing. The chrononauts were emerging everywhere in his analog library, so that it came to see that everything, all of his life itself, was an extra-dimensional fabrication of their doing. But Eddie Ryan saw it clear enough. The chrononauts were constellations drawn into time at its most motionless, like myths. They must have come, or might have come, but they never really came. The fact was that in his three years at the Orangerie, Eddard Ryan had been educated as a materialist and a scientific rationalist. He was a soldier in a war that had its own carefully guarded history, and that war had placed him here in this way for its own purpose. His future would not arise in an Englishman's forgotten past, but in the present alone. Skaw was English, half English anyhow, and in his decadence it showed. The fact was the lad was stronger in his relation to the past than the fat count. Skaw felt this and drew away. He never introduced him to the scientific secrets of his labs. He implied Ryan was only one of many other confidential assistants. But Ryan's workload increased, and the objects he was forced to view grew stranger, more peculiarly directed. "'Tis an ancient desire, and the essence of all knowledge, to discover you are something else than you are." Eddard Ryan returned by way of mental revulsion to the here and now, understanding finally that Skaw believed the chrononauts were indeed all future versions of Skaw, interfering with his own experience of history, sending organic material across space and time to themselves in messages that were not possible to read. Or were they? Ryan in his work was to certify all ska, all time. Could the entire species constitute a single solar self reflecting throughout solid time into the innumerable individual, often simultaneous lives? Could this creature be ska? Ska certainly was. As to being revealed potentially as the messiah of chrononautics, all ska everywhere, this one still believed in some sort of individual destiny in this time, some sort of place where he would come to meet the other skaws already there, already moving across timelines of the past, and claim what he must have seen was some grail-like award. He called these other skaws god skaws. But the more he read, the more Ryan doubted that our Simway skaw would succeed in traveling in time. Always a performer, skaw was in the end a creature stuck in the here and now. His biographer Symbian Strode called him a Tesla in ship-flops and bathrobe, but he was more a Velikovsky in vellum, a dreamer and lover of books, whose time, first or second, had come and gone, as if all that mass of his, sans gravitas, added up to the exact square root of his inability to accomplish anything at all in the here and now. Meanwhile, monomania left Skaw entirely blind as to the movement of others. Eddard Ryan operated a virtual black market empire right under his pug nose. He reported Skaw's visitors weekly to control in full detail, he stowed away insurgent fighters on the run, dangerous men and women belonging to illegal organizations. He accepted and fenced all kinds of specialized engineering inventions and ideas. Finally, he helped the well-known confidence man Nick Wesley trick Skaw out of an authentic Vermeer. And just then, in 2133, just after the anniversary of Ed Orion's second system standard year on the Pollyann, Control sent another pong over Monocle. 
A young woman was coming aboard, a sister in the movement and a graduate of the Orangerie. She would be traveling with her mother, an acquaintance of Skaw. Eddard Ryan was to rendezvous with her, jump ship, and move to Luna City. Ryan hadn't talked to the Count in two weeks when the day came. He gave no notice. Skaw was scheduled that hour to be in the laboratories, but the old man was waiting in the gardens that morning. Glaring out from the distance, high up among the omni-radiated redwoods, he watched Eddard Ryan leave him through a spyglass, just where the young man could spot him observing it. And that was supposed to have been the last he saw of Count Reginald Simway Skaw. Imagine his surprise then, twenty-two system standard years later, at the end of another telescope, in Anna's lounge it happened, when Eddard Ryan marked the first ship to take orbit in over seven and one-half dull brown murk years. There was no more monocle, meanwhile, to confirm perception, but it appeared to be the golden ass, Reg Skaw's new scaled-back cruiser, red and gold like a Chinese fish. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.